When the frogs get together for their nightly symphony, come all my friends and gather round. Drink some lemon tea. It won't cost you a nickel, friend. The hot dogs on me. So gather round to the sound of the froggy symphony. Welcome to episode four of Seed Pod the podcast that brings you closer to Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows through the perspectives of five diverse hosts and their amazing guests. In this episode, you will meet Kristen Dobbs, host of the Struggle is Real podcast. Amy will speak with her about wellness on the farm, her innovative approach to healing after trauma strikes. Before that, Jack will guide you through part three of the Hundred Year War on Salmon, which features guest Jeff Clayton's amazing recall of the decades-long power struggle by the community on the Alouette River. But first, a short poem. Tiny Ripples The summer bloom rides high on the lake, disguising froggy snouts except for the telltale swirl when you get too close for amphibian comfort. Near the shallows lurk leeches, waiting for plump lakes to furnish lunch more exotic than the usual fishy fare. The water is cold, spring-fed, the better for dragonflies to sip as they clatter above in prehistoric aerial battles. Try as you might, you can't see black-backed trout gliding under the ends of trees flattened by winter storms. The loons are always somewhere else on the lake, but their calls remind who is master of this domain. The beaver don't pay attention. Suppose the sound of crunching wood just makes it too hard to focus. But slinky pack rats wrinkle their noses, wary of strange man scent, and lusting after shiny things to decorate their nests. The chipmunks compete with the squirrels to see who can hoard more nutty treats, stealing cinnamon buns left to cool on a stump. And in the middle, tiny ripples forge outward my canoe. As always, we are grateful to be broadcasting to you from the traditional unceded territories of the Katsi First Nation and the Kwantlen First Nation, who have been stewards of this land from time immemorial. Now, here are Jack and Christian introducing part three of the Hundred Year War on Salmon. Christian, we found that BC Hydro and the Department of Fisheries and Oceans have not made any provision to guarantee water down the river needed to sustain Alouette River salmon. One hot summer day, Clayton visits the dam and finds that no water at all is coming from the low-level outlet pipe on the dam. Jack, you have to ask yourself, why did a private citizen have to discover this? Why didn't the uh, DFO do it? It's their job to monitor and protect fish and habitat. It's a key question. So Jeff Clayton walks down the river and he finds dead salmon fry in homemade hot tubs the residents have made just to keep cool. Clayton shows the DFO pictures of these hot tubs and dead fish. They acknowledge his concern for the fish, but say BC Hydro has water rights, and if they ask for more water, they'll be charged for it. Clayton says he's shocked by that response. In our last segment, we discovered that there are other issues in the community regarding water flow. For example, the health officials have banned swimming because of high levels of E. coli from overflowing septic tanks. The public demand for more water becomes increasingly louder. We've entitled today's segment, We Want Water and We Want It Now, a demand from Maple Ridge Reeve Dirksen, who has joined the ground level demand for greater flows in the Alouette. In part three of the Hundred Years' War on Alouette Salmon, we'll learn more about how the agency responsible for protection of salmon wasn't protecting salmon at all. Christian, as a former commercial fisherman, you probably have seen some big spring salmon in ocean waters. Certainly have, mostly about 40 pounders. Have you seen a 50 pounder clear the water and splash down on a river as it heads upstream to spawn? As an ocean guy, no, sorry. 
Well, I used to watch them do that with amazement on the Harrison River near Agassiz. That was a few decades ago. Well, and old-timers used to report catching 40-pound Chinook in the Alouette. And for a long time, they enjoyed fishing a very healthy steelhead population. But in the 1960s, Jeff was hearing from members of the Maple Ridge Rod and Gun Club that the big fish weren't there anymore, and the steelhead just weren't showing up in the same numbers. They thought the problem was not enough water from the dam. Clayton is a club member. He has a contact in BC Hydro located at the Stave Power Station. His name is Archie Loist. Clayton calls him up looking for help with water flow. I think it's still in the uh, 60s that you told Archie Loist you'd observed no water from the LLO, low-level outlet pipe, on the dam that goes into the river and asked why BC Hydro wasn't releasing the water fish needed. What was his answer? Well, I think I got to back that up and say that having moved on to the Alouette in 1966, I also joined BC Hydro as a power engineer. And so I, I knew some people within BC Hydro. I worked um, with a chap whose father was the superintendent out at um, Stave and Ruskin. And uh, therefore, I, I went to this chap called Archie Loist and said, um, you know, I'm very concerned with the conditions on the Alouette uh, in midsummer. They're low and hot. Fish are dying. Um, and, and he was gracious enough to come right out to the Alouette uh, through the little park there, the 232nd Avenue Bridge, and have a look at the river. Um, and, he, and he said, yes, uh, you know, uh, clearly there is an issue. It's, uh, but he said, you know, BC Hydro has a water rights license to the water that they're holding above the dam. And he said, the, my local operating orders to, to guide me um, that come down from headquarters uh, state there is no obligation under BC Hydro's water license to release any water for fish past the dam or for that matter um, to take responsibility for flood control. And we, our license go back uh, to 1909. So BC Hydro's license going back to 1909 means they don't have to release more water for fish or for flood control. That seems to be irresponsible on the part of the authorities. This license is impacting a local food source and ecology, and actually putting people down the river potentially at risk of a flood if the dam gives way. So this is all true, and other people like Maple Ridge Councillor Bill Archibald are starting to discover that as well. Let's hear from Jeff how that takes place. So that's uh, very disappointing information from Loist that there's no uh, wording in BC Hydro's water license compelling them to release adequate flows for fish. But you're looking for some good news. And then you, you get a surprise call in 1968 from a Maple Ridge District councillor that offers hope. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was quite interesting. Um, Bill Archibald uh, was a great environmentally uh, spirited uh, chap, and he was a councillor, and he called me and he said, look, the little town hall here, we want to hold a meeting and we want to pull together people that are concerned about the conditions in the Alouette, uh, especially in the summertime, uh, and would you attend because your your voice has been heard already? And I did. And um, there was, uh, he, he stated that the, the mayor, uh, there actually wasn't mayor in, in those days. He was the Reeve, Peter Genowin you know, uh, had given him kind of the the portfolio of looking into this, which he was doing. And so we did have a town hall meeting. It was quite interesting because uh, back in those days, um, there was varying points of view. There was some concern that small little septic fields uh, for those people that lived right on the river were failing and raw sewage was going into the river. Uh, there was others that said... Um, you know, the summer recreation was uh, severely harmed by the low flows and by the uh, E. coli count that was showing up. And at times the river was suggested as being closed to swimming because of this. Uh, there was others concerned with the fish and that was raised. And I raised it quite strongly and gave them a little back, stood up and gave them a little background of working for BC Hydro, what my investigations had found and my uh, discussions with DFO. and. So uh, sometime later after that meeting, there was a small group that came together 
as as a group um, and and held more meetings and and started to spearhead um we could do to uh, to address this. Uh, I could go on here, but possibly this will lead to another question. The town hall meeting pointed out ways inadequate water flow affect the public. And Jeff's been able to explain the effect on salmon and habitat. What was the response to the town meeting from uh, BC Hydro? Here's Jeff to tell us. What did you say about, uh, you, okay, you, you talked about the conditions salmon faced. How did BC Hydro respond to all of this, what you and the community were saying? Well, you know, I did, uh, I did, of course, tell you how BC Hydro responded through the auspices of the superintendent, Archie Lois. But, um, you know, generally speaking, they were, they were not wanting to engage directly with us. They were sitting back in the weeds in what they considered their comfort zone. So what we did, uh, we went to our MLA, um, George Masalem, told him about the issues and our concerns. Um, we found that a, a prior MLA, uh, Lyle Wick, had raised it too, because in those days, the most active group that were concerned with the flows were the Maple Ridge Rod and Gun Club, because they had some ardent steelhead fishermen. They didn't really get a handle on what the issues were, but they, in terms of interfacing with BC Hydro, but uh, they certainly uh, were concerned with their steelhead uh, going down in numbers. And so it was, um, it was kind of a, a coming together of a group. Then um, it was, I, I, I wrote a letter to the minister in Victoria, provincial government, who was uh, concerned with this, um, got some answers back. And we started to develop, I guess, some heat against BC Hydro. And then the next thing we knew, we got a message that uh, from DFO that they were going to sit down with BC Hydro and see if they could sort this out and, uh, and negotiate a, a flow release for the salmon. But prior to that, we had already reviewed, and I suggested that a quarter of the mean average inflows uh, to that watershed would be a reasonable amount to consider and would be the least amount if we were to try and save the salmon. But then what happened, uh, a meeting, we were told to step back. The DFO was taking over. They sat down with BC Hydro. Um, we were locked out and didn't hear for possibly even six months later that a flow agreement had been reached, a minimum flow agreement. It was 0.7 of <laughs> of of one percent of the original mean average inflows, it 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 was an insult. Uh, I mean, we were shocked. Uh, how, how do you even measure 0.7? And further to that, that was at the dam site. The release from the low level outlet, a pipe that ran under the dam that had a control valve on it. The other aspect of this agreement was. If the flows were 25 cubic feet per second under the 232nd Avenue bridge, measured by Water Survey Canada's gauging station, then that would satisfy the flows. So if the tributaries were, uh, were putting out a fair amount, BC Hydro might not really have to release any more than the 0.7. But if it was dry summer conditions, Yes, uh, the tributaries were drying up. They might have to release, you know, 20 to 25 cubic feet per second. So as to the percentage of time that this was going to affect hydro's loss of water, probably it was very minimal. It seems the Department of Fisheries and Oceans has finally begun to respond to community pressure a bit now. Was Jeff encouraged by the agency deciding to discuss the issue with BC Hydro? It seemed like a good thing. But Jeff says there was one glaring problem. DFO didn't ask for anyone's input before meeting with BC Hydro. And as a result, the agreement doesn't meet community requirements. Here's Jeff to explain. So, Jeff, you did not know that DFO and BC Hydro had uh, a meeting about uh, the community's water concerns. Uh, did DFO contact you to let you know that they had done this? No, it, uh, to my amazement, it was like we were a non-entity. And I guess, you know, you know, governments, um, you know, they, they have their responsibilities. Um, 
and they consider themselves uh, with a vested interest uh, of being all-powerful. First Nations, it's a face-to-face responsibility they have with them, but as far as I know, there was no contact with Casey uh, First Nation and certainly no contact with us. It just came down via the rumor mill that uh, an agreement had been reached and this is what it was. So that's quite a bit to, to take in. Where are we at in this story, Jack? Let's summarize. There isn't enough water coming over the dam for salmon to rear or spawn. That's noticed not by the DFO or by the Ministry of the Environment Water Licensing Branch, but by local fishermen who used to catch lots of big fish. Jeff Clayton takes up the fight to get BC Hydro to release more water. He discovers from a BC Hydro supervisor at Stave Dam, named Archie Loist, that BC Hydro isn't required to release more water for fish or for flood control. Gradually, others, like Maple Ridge Councillor Bill Archibald, join in the cause. A town hall meeting is called, in which the various needs of the community are stated. DFO responds to increasing public pressure by finally asking BC Hydro to release more water. But they don't invite community participation. Right. Clayton says they were told to stand back. And the agreement reached in 1970 between the DFO and BC Hydro turns out to be totally inadequate for fish. Clayton says he's surprised by DFO's lack of interest and shocked that public advocates for water had been treated like a quote-unquote non-entity. We were locked out, says Clayton, of the decision process. He thinks now it appears they've written the Alouette off. For the first time, Clayton is frustrated and discouraged. Will it ever be possible to get the water in the river that Alouette salmon survival depends on? What will it take to get BC Hydro to release more water over the dam for salmon? We'll see in the next part of the Hundred Years' War on Alouette Salmon New recruits, the battle for water heats up. The are my orchestra, lively blend of sound. Some basses croak, others crick while squatting on the ground. The tenors, they can cluck or eat. The altos sing out a rivet. And that one there by your easy chair, think his note is pivot. Now we turn to co-host Amy Wood's conversation, with Kristen Dobbs, host of The Struggle is Real podcast and co-creator of Wellness on the Farm, where horsing around is just something they do. Kristen, welcome to the Seed Pod. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Um, before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge that we are recording from the stolen territories of the Stolo people. And it's a privilege and an honor to live on this land. And I don't believe that we can have a conversation about wellness without acknowledging the original and continued stewards of this land, which nourishes us, protects us, and heals us. So Kristen, I'm so grateful that you took the time out of your day to chat with me. So again, first and foremost, thank you. Oh, thank you. So before we dive into some of the spicy questions that I have for you, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey and introduction to wellness? All right. So uh, my name is Kristen Dobbs, and I am a meditation teacher and a podcaster and a huge lover of horses. And I would say that wellness and meditation has been a part of my life for a very long time, but about two and a half to three years ago, I had kind of a life-changing trauma that happened that changed kind of everything about my life. And I was doing all of the things that we're told to do to heal, to get better, to get through it. And it wasn't quite working. There was a missing element uh, and I couldn't really figure out what it was. And around the same time, uh, my friend Amanda Austin, who's my business partner now, but at the time she was a friend, she reached out and confided that she had also gone through uh, a trauma around the same time and was also struggling to heal. And so we decided that we would meditate together on the farm where I have my horses. 
And for both of us, that was kind of the missing link. It was that community aspect. It was having somebody else witness your healing that wasn't trying to fix you. And it was really overwhelming. It was really beautiful. And other people wanted to experience it as well. And so we started to open it up to other people uh, to share meditation with them. And it took off. So it ended up being that we started Wellness on the Farm. And then it grew too big for the farm. And so we actually had to move our business off of the farm. Uh, But we were really lucky to be welcomed kind of with open arms to a few really beautiful locations in and around Pitt Meadows and Maple Ridge, people that have let us use their amazing spaces. And we cannot wait to get back to after we're allowed to open back up after this pandemic. So that's kind of been my journey and the amount of like healing that has happened uh, with community around has been monumental. So yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that you mentioned the word witnessing because that I've had a similar experience. I've done, you know, my own kind of self stuff. And then I've, the first time I attended a breathwork session with a group of people, it was like transformative, just being able to express all of those emotions in front of other people. Yeah. I've, I've never experienced anything like that before. Yeah. yeah. And without judgment and they have nothing invested in, in your healing, but they're there to hold that space for you. It's just, Oh, it's really beautiful. It's yeah. Beautiful. It's really, I actually recently heard of a term called withnessing. Ooh. Yeah. And I feel like when I heard that, everything just kind of clicked because I'm like, oh, and I so I recently actually did some research about it. And it's kind of like the shared body experience. And it's like an interdependent relationship. And I just thought, oh, I love that so much. So yeah, kind of sounds like what you're talking about as well. Totally, totally. I like that word. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll send you some some info about it, actually. Me after too. You I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So you also actually touched a little bit on the farm and wellness on the farm. So yeah. do you want to talk about what you do then with wellness on the farm? Like what kind of offerings that you have yeah. and what kind of people maybe come to those offerings and stuff? Oh, well, it's been a really huge part of both Amanda and I, our journey. So we obviously started on a farm and we haven't changed our name because uh, we would, our goal is to be back on a farm. Mm -hmm. For us, as we were kind of doing this withnessing, as you Mm -hmm. put it, which I really like, we did start to kind of branch out and try to find community. And unfortunately, we didn't find a ton of acceptance. Mm -hmm. And I think you've got some spicy questions about this later, so I won't touch on this too much because I can I can get into it. But mm-hmm. so our goal was to really create somewhere and a space for everyone that was inclusive, that was welcoming and friendly, no matter what you looked like, sounded like, act like, where you were, what your experience was. Because one of the things, so I have a bunch of rescue horses. And one of the things that horses are the most amazing teachers of is this absolute acceptance, no matter what, they don't care where you come from, how much money you have, like they do not see that they see who you are. And we really wanted to perpetuate that both on and off the farm, this idea that you are welcome no matter what. And so that's something that we've really tried to bring forward in our in our offerings. We were doing a lot of in-person meditations and we do sound healings. Obviously with the pandemic that's changed, we've moved our offerings a little bit more online. But that's really just the energy that we try to bring. And again, you have so many great questions that I I can't wait for. So I'm going to, we'll totally get into more of that, I feel, uh, in a bit of a spicier way. But yeah, that's really what we're we're trying to do is be a place where people can start their meditation and wellness journey, feeling accepted, feeling supported and cared for. I love that. Okay. So before we get into that stuff, I actually 
notice something else just with you talking about the farm and the horses and stuff and correct me if I'm wrong but to me it sounds also like wellness to you is kind of interconnected with nature so do you want to maybe speak to that a little bit I think wellness and nature are so intertwined they're such a part of of my personal journey and what I find a lot of people are kind of looking for is that peace within themselves, that peace that they find in nature and just like a deeper connection to themselves and the world around them. And we have, we can so easily forget our humanity and it's really hard to do that in nature. Like in nature, you're connected to who you are on a a basic level. And I think, yeah, especially over the last year and a half, people have really needed that deep connection. Yeah. 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 I find there's a real kind of like sterile nature to a lot of wellness. And I I think, I feel like that might be detrimental. So I like that there's such an integration with what you do and nature, because I think that's so important. Yeah. I mean, we as humans get dirty and sad and messy and it's not perfect and it's not great. And, you know, we don't all smell like sandalwood. There's, <laughs> it's really, really multifaceted. And uh, I think that that's something that we really like to dive into. Yeah. It's so humbling to be in nature. It's such a humbling experience. Yeah. We are small. We yes. are, we are very small and our problems are, yeah, are, we can deal with things. Okay, so you may have kind of already talked about this, but I do find that wellness is a bit of a buzzword these days. It carries a lot of different definitions, depending on who you're speaking to. So in your own words, do you have a definition for wellness? And maybe also how it's evolved, like perhaps you had a different definition when you started. And now what might that definition be? Oh, it is it is such an intensely personal experience. I can define it for myself, but I want to be really clear that it's going to look different for everyone. Mm-hmm. And if you have someone in your life telling you that it has to look like A, B, C, and D, I would be highly skeptical of that. So for myself, initially, I would say I had a very different definition of it sort of prior to this trauma that I went through. And when I was healing from this trauma, I just wanted to be feeling a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And I used to really equate wellness with happiness. Mm -hmm. And now I equate wellness with balance. Mm -hmm. Because happiness, when we look for it externally, when we look to be happy because of an event or a meditation or a yoga class we're not going to find it. So now wellness, my wellness practice or how I think of wellness for myself is about uh, doing the things in my life that bring me balance. I'm not chasing happiness. I'm chasing balance. And whatever brings you into balance as a human being is going to be so different and so unique and entirely up to you. Yeah, absolutely. So what... What does it feel like to you when things are balanced? Oh, it feels like calm. Yeah. And peace. I'm not reacting from like my emotional core. I'm I'm able to see things a lot more clearly and I feel okay. I think we as a society have this obsession with the extremes, this really extreme happiness or this really extreme sadness and there is there can be somewhere in the middle that is so beautiful and it's yeah that's what I strive for on a daily basis and that's hopefully what we we are putting out into the world as well yeah so I definitely sense that and feel that from (laughs) the stuff that you're putting out the content that you're putting out so I think that you're doing a really good job of captivating that (laughs) oh good so it's interesting when I my When I was younger, I probably equated, I feel like I equated wellness more with like perceived wellness and like the, a a person who looks well and, and the the very narrow um, definition of what that means. And now I'm 
I'm also kind of, I've evolved that definition of wellness to also like a very personal definition, which is, yeah, contentment and yes. and not, not in, I don't know, um, not, not in agita- constant agitation or feeling like something needs to change in order for me to, like you said, achieve that happiness or which is so freeing. It's so awesome. Yeah. Well, and I think that we're always like, okay, when I lose weight, I'll be there. When I get this job, I'll be there. When I do this other thing, I'll be there. When I can meditate for two hours, I'll be there. You are never going to be there. So you might as well just look for the balance in the moment of now in your body, in your heart, how it is now in yeah, who you are now is valid and worthy and totally fine. I love that. And so counterculture, which is so strange, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think this is probably a good segue then into talking about the wellness industry. So yeah, the wellness industry has become huge. It's it's exploded. Sources cite that in 2020, the global wellness industry generated a massive $639 billion. So why do you think that is? <laughs> I actually love this question. I love that you're asking this question. I think we need to be asking ourselves this question a lot more, anyone that's in the wellness space. And I honestly believe that there's kind of two factions of the wellness quote unquote industry. There's one side of it that profits off of telling people that they are broken, that they're not okay, and that you need to buy this product, drink, cream, whatever, attend this masterclass uh, to fix it. And it's gross. (laughs) It's gross. And it's a huge industry, just like you're saying. It's a huge industry. Uh, There is the other kind of branch of wellness, which I think is a lot smaller, uh, but that's kind of where I like to hang out, which is people that recognize that we are all innately worthy, that we're all okay, regardless of what society is telling us and that our job or what we do is just to try to help you remember that you are worthy, okay, valid and valuable as you are right here, right now. Yeah. But this other branch is a lot bigger and stronger and gaining momentum and is very lucrative. Yes. So let's fight against that. (laughs) Yes, yes. uh, Yeah, which I mean, it it is such a lucrative industry. And also, I find then because it's such a lucrative industry, it's often super inaccessible to the majority of folks from a financial Mm. perspective, and also just a time investment perspective as well. So what are your thoughts then on wellness and accessibility? Oh, I have some big thoughts on this. Uh, Some really big thoughts. There's a couple of things. So the first, when we're talking about time, we also live in a society that teaches us that uh, we are valuable if we're productive, Mm -hmm. which is not good. I'll try not to swear on your podcast, but it (laughs) makes me angry. And the thing is, is that so we are stuck in this loop of always needing to be busy, always needing to be productive, always needing to go, go, go. And taking time for yourself is seen as a negative thing. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. we the social media presents this image of like the the moms that are doing something for themselves. They can't win. Right. Like, oh, did you leave your kid at home? Did you? Like all of these things, we're we're taught that taking a few minutes for ourselves is actually a negative thing. Yeah. And so I think that we need to start perpetuating more images of people taking that 10 minutes mm-hmm. for themselves and not having it seen in a negative light. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side of that, I think that uh, a lot of wellness can be really uh Again, it's an industry that's created a lot of money on telling people that they need to stick to a really rigid schedule. They need to be on all of these supplements. They need to be doing 10 yoga classes a week. They need to be, you know, doing three meditations a day to be well. That is not the truth. Well, and it's so unsustainable. 
Like I've tried to do that and you're setting yourself up for failure. And then it's just more, you know, of that message that there's something wrong with you and you need to do something to fix yourself. You failed, you're broken. You need to try harder and you need to put more work into it. Uh, So yeah, it is completely inaccessible to that level. Mm. uh, I think that we need to have a more realistic expectation of ourselves and what wellness is. And then the accessibility in terms of, to regular people of wellness. You're right. It's not accessible. And it isn't going to be successful accessible unless we start talking about it, unless we start advocating for it to be accessible uh, until we start holding people to the standard of making it accessible. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, is we can we can put all of our social media images out there and you can say whatever you want. But if you're not coming out and saying, this is for everyone, all bodies, all people, all genders, welcome, Mm -hmm. people aren't going to get that message, Mm -hmm. you know, and we, we live in a world that tells us that if we're older or bigger or, you know, whatever, we might not be welcome. And even though we write it in all of our stuff, and I talk about it ad nauseum, we still have people message us and say, am I allowed to come to your meditation? Like, can I bring my friend? I'm transgender. Can I come? I'm this, I'm that I'm older. I've never been to a meditation. We like people are still questioning it. Yeah. So I think we need to have this conversation a hundred times over and we need to be providing wellness at all, not pay grades. What's the word I'm looking for at all levels, Mm -hmm. like socioeconomic status kind of status or boundaries right we need to for us there's many ways in which you can access us and our teachings that are free Mm. and we are also a business so we do have paid offerings but our goal is to always make sure that you have access to a meditation or uh, like a pdf book or something there's always a free offering we have free meditations every thursday like you should be able to access wellness no matter who you are, how much money you have. Yeah. I love that. You're speaking my language. <laughs> you are speaking, <laughs> I could talk about this for literally ever. <laughs> well, and it's not the most popular opinion. I am not, I'm not the most popular person in all of the wellness circles because I, I talk about this, mm-hmm. but we shouldn't be gatekeeping wellness, Mm -hmm. if we really truly believe in it, we should be making it accessible to people, no matter how much money they have. Yeah, I 100% agree. It's interesting you talked about, we only have value if we're productive. Mm -hmm. I literally said to my husband the other day, I really want to relax, but I wonder if there's a way I can relax more productively. (laughs) (laughs) It infiltrates your mind, even if you're aware of this kind of thing. It's just, it's in there, you know? A hundred percent. And this is actually like, this is something that kind of trickles over from the horse world is we have this idea that, that animals or that horses specifically aren't productive or they aren't valuable if they can't be ridden. Mm. And I have a whole herd of horses that can't be ridden, but are the most valuable members of my herd. And so this is something that we have to talk about with, with people too. You're, intrinsically valuable yeah yeah through existence mm-hmm. that again another so count- counterculture and counter capitalism <laughs> yep <laughs> <laughs> yeah wow this is this is great this is great stuff okay so we kind of touched on this a little bit with respect to you know all body types and stuff mm-hmm. but i would say the uh, kind of do- in our dominant culture, the face of wellness is often depicted as a thin, upper middle class, able-bodied white woman, aka somebody like Gwyneth Paltrow. So what do you think is the impact of this and how do we actually go about changing it? Uh, I think it has a horrible impact. I think it's uh, so detrimental. And it makes me laugh because I feel like that stereotype is showing up late to the wellness 
game. There are so many beautiful indigenous cultures that have had such a bigger, deeper, stronger understanding of wellness for as long as we've existed as humans. And then we have a a stereotype showing up and being like, no, we claim this. Yeah. (sighs) So, yeah, I mean, I think I think having conversations about this, I think branching branching out and making sure that we are accessible, making sure that we are inclusive and really just having these conversations Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is so important. I'm not, I I don't necessarily know how to go about ending this, but I know that paying close attention to amazing people that are involved in the wellness industry that are not white, cisgendered, middle-aged women, that are able-bodied with deep pockets Mm -hmm. is a really good place to start. And that's kind of where I'm doing my work and learning. And I think that everyone should endeavor, everyone involved in this space should endeavor to do the same. Yeah, I agree. Do you have anyone in particular that you might recommend that listeners check out? Well, you know what? We've been really blessed through our podcast, which we'll chat about yeah. uh, in a little bit, uh, to meet some incredible, incredible people. One of my absolute favorite people that we've ever chatted with on our podcast is a woman named Victoria. Mm-hmm. And she is just, we interviewed her at the beginning of our podcast and kind of the beginning of her project. And she is uh, disabled and she's created an entire line of clothing that's completely adaptable for people that uh, are getting medical procedures done so that they are, they have the decency. They don't have to remove all their clothing. Um, And she also just adapts people's current, like people that have become disabled. She adapts their wardrobe to, to fit whatever they need. So she's one of my favorite people in terms of uh, chatting about able-bodiedness. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a handful. I can definitely give your listeners some of the, especially like Instagram people that I follow that I really love. But there's some really beautiful voices that are not white, cisgendered, wealthy. You just have women. to look for them. You have to look for them, right? You have to be intentional about to- it. Yeah. And I think too, like, I think the internet is an algorithm. Mm -hmm. What you look at finds you. So start branching out. Yeah. Start looking around, check out some different hashtags. It's really, really easy for people to stay where they're comfortable. And I think we joke a lot about, we're like, you know, wellness isn't a bunch of white women in flowy dresses walking down a beach. Uh, so I think, yeah, just looking, looking around, checking out some different hashtags that you might not normally, and just putting yourself in a position to be willing to like learn from others from a humble place is really important. Yeah. Okay. Just out of curiosity, this is just kind of for myself, but you're an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. You believe that you know, wellness should be accessible to everyone. I believe that in my business, that public speaking should be accessible to everyone. And it is really challenging for me, at least, like operating within the current capitalist system, recognizing that we need to make money to live, but we also want it to be accessible. So how do you find that balance of, you know, charging your worth and, you know, caring for your own needs as well and running a business and putting your heart and energy into it and also wanting to make your your offerings accessible to people. It's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. And I would say the, the struggle for me is to not just give everything away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is really the part that's hard for me. Yeah. But then yes, you're right. Recognizing like, I have many horses to feed and you know, yeah. I, I, have, I have things to do, but I always, always am working on something paid and something that's a free offering mm. or a no cost offering at the same time. Okay. Um, and that feels good in my heart. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I try to balance it. Mm-hmm. And if I don't have that going on, that's where it feels a little, I get a little, it makes me a little uncomfortable or I feel like out of balance with what I'm giving back and what I'm 
earning, if that makes sense. So I always try to have kind of a free offering and a paid offering at the same time going on in my like list of projects. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I love that approach, actually. I've been doing a lot of research lately about like liberatory pricing models and stuff. And that's a good one that I haven't heard yet. So we'll note that down because I like that a lot. I think that's great. Yeah, I don't know. That just feels good in my heart. Yeah. So yeah, I always try to have something going on that's like, here you go, universe, and then something that's that is paid that will pay the bills. Yeah. So. Yeah. I I thought you were gonna say when you were talking about it that the struggle was real. Um, <laughs> and I was like, damn it, you didn't say it. Um, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, I can now. We can start again. <laughs> but I, I sense that the struggle is real. <laughs> it, it, it's true. It is. Um, okay. So uh, I think that's a good, um, a good segue then. You are the co-host then of the Struggle is Real podcast. So yes. tell me about your podcast. Uh, what prompted you to get started and how's it going? Well, it was really interesting. So we had had an idea for a podcast, like just that we wanted to do a podcast, but we had absolutely no idea, Amanda and I, of what it would look like. But if we've learned anything from our business, it's to trust, to close your eyes and jump. That's kind of how we've done everything in our business thus far. And we've done okay. So we're going to probably keep it up. Mm -hmm. But we knew that the right idea would come along. and. Right before the pandemic, we did a bunch of in-person events, Mm -hmm. like back to back. We had quite a few on the on the docket and people after all of our events would come up to us and say, we at least have one person that would come up to us and say, I'm really struggling with meditation or I had a really hard time today because I'm going through this thing Mm -hmm. and they would tell us about it and it was always with this feeling like no one would be able to understand because it was such an intense thing or such a crazy trauma or no one had ever gone through something like this before and there was shame in that when people would tell us Mm -hmm. about these things Mm -hmm. and so this happened for quite a bit and because I think people were assuming that obviously they're telling us in confidence. We couldn't tell people, oh, hey, by the way, that lady that you are sitting next to in meditation, she told us last week that she's also gone through a similar situation. Maybe you guys can talk. We didn't feel like we could say that. And it also just made us so aware that every single person has a struggle that they're going through and that it's so easy to feel really alone in that struggle and feel like nobody else can understand because nobody else has been there. Yeah. So when the pandemic hit, we were still thinking about this and then thinking about the fact that now that we weren't doing in-person events, we weren't a place for people to talk about these things Mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to do something. So we decided to make our podcast, The Struggle is Real. I had no idea that 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 was, because I I think I found you all after you had started, like it it was definitely a while after you had started your podcast. I had no idea that it was kind of the pivot from the pandemic. And I guess it kind of created some space in your lives to be like, "Hmm, we could do something like that. So I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. And we still starting it out, didn't know what it was going to look like and kind of thought that we would be dealing with some like fairly light topics Mm. and it would be, you know, that is not what it has become. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We didn't realize that the space that we were creating would be filled with people trusting us and our listeners and our community with some of the most intense, powerful, heartbreaking, rock bottom moments of their lives. And every single time that we get on to chat with someone, I think we're both just completely humbled by the fact that we're entrusted with these stories. It's phenomenal and we've literally talked about I think just about anything like 
the topics are very wide ranging and very, yeah, they can be intense. But again, it's that sense of witnessing, right? It's, yeah. it's witnessing someone's struggle, it's witnessing someone's journey, and then seeing where they are today and how they made it through and that they're here and they're okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's very powerful. I just want to yeah, commend you and Amanda on the work that you are doing because I think that you you handle each episode with such grace. And it's it is really special to be able to create that container for people to to feel vulnerable. Yeah. And every episode that I've listened to, I've just been so impressed with um, how you both carry yourselves and it's, it's, yeah, it's on, it's on my follow, my follow list and my Spotify. So yeah. So <laughs> I just wanted you to know Thank that. You so much. <laughs> oh, I appreciate it so much. Okay. So on the topic then of the people that you've interviewed, cause you've interviewed a lot now. So yeah. What, how, who, who are some of your favorite guests been and what made their stories oh. so impactful? Oh, there, there are so many amazing people. And it's, to be honest with you, it has been the craziest experience and actually so beautiful because we have made lasting friendships mm-hmm. from this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I think because people trust us, they get on our podcast and we ask them when the worst day of their life was. And they tell us and we all cry and then it it bonds us together forever in some strange way. But, oh, there have been episodes where we've really, really learned. Uh, I would say the episode with Victoria that I was telling you about, Mm -hmm. who's a disability advocate, that Mm -hmm. was really powerful. There was just things I didn't know and it was really beautiful to learn and it's changed the way that I interact in life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really powerful. There's a woman named Ashley who we chatted with, who shared her story of being very suicidal and how it felt to be there and how her, how she how she was helped through that situation, but then also how she would like people to think uh, of people who are suicidal. Mm. Um, So that was really impactful. That one stayed with me for quite a while. Yeah. Let's think. There was a woman named Amanda that we chatted with who was the victim of sex trafficking and labor trafficking and who went on to work with the FBI to break up child sex rings Wow! Uh, in Thailand. Wow. Like, wow. Yeah. Her, I still, I still just am amazed and inspired uh, by her episode. And there's people that have just become such sources of comfort. There's an episode that we did with a gentleman named Dell who talks about his journey into self-love. And I didn't expect when you're just doing a podcast, you have an hour long chat with someone. He's always there, always sending me a message, always asking like, how are you doing? You doing good? So supportive, so lovely. So there's people like that where you didn't expect that person to change your life. But they did. Yeah. And gave you you the support that you didn't know that you needed. So yeah, there's been so many absolutely beautiful episodes. But yeah, I would say that those are those are kind of the people that really stick out for me in yeah. terms of like that I think about almost daily. Maybe maybe yeah. we can link to those episodes in the show notes. Yeah, so for sure. I feel like I'm probably totally missing some really good good ones in there too. But uh, yeah, that just off the top of my head, those are the ones that stick with me the most, I would say. So, and then what about just the process of interviewing so many people and, you know, just starting a podcast and going through, I guess, if you started at the beginning of the pandemic, it's been over a year now. So yeah, we have, we are, so our last interview of this of our first season came out on like this last Friday. Yeah. And that was episode 45. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> uh our process is 
a little bit different, I think. We out of we talk to a lot more people than we interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We kind of have to make sure that it's the right kind of story. But yeah. the other part of it is we chat to people beforehand because we want to make sure that they're in an emotional place, in mm-hmm. a safe place, and have support so that they are able to tell their story. We don't want to walk anyone back through their trauma in a way that's going to be difficult for them. Yeah. So we chat with people beforehand, see if it's going, if it's going to work or be the kind of the right story for where we're at in the season. And then we book an interview with people and we chat for the hour. That sounds, that's, that's really smart that you do that. I wouldn't have thought to do that, but because you are working with such difficult topics and lived experiences that absolutely makes so much sense. (laughs) Yeah. And there has, there have been people where we talk to them and we're like, we love your story and it's super valid. We just, it's not the right time for it or they're still in the thick of it or they're still, you know, and our main, our main thing with the podcast is to show people that uh, again, like going back to social media, I think we have this idea of what healing looks like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that it's this very linear process and it's beautiful. And there's like the sun shines through the clouds and then you're swirling, drinking a celery juice on the beach with all your girlfriends (laughs) And that it can be so ugly and messy and sad. And um, there's another woman that we talked to. Her name is Danny. And she talks about this moment of uh, her kind of realizing that her entire life needed to change as she was on her kitchen floor crying so hard and puking and like snot and tears. And these are the things that we don't talk about. And so when people are healing, they think they're doing it wrong. Because it looks gross. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. it's not like, it's not pretty. It's not I mean, I I that just made me think of Oprah always talks about the ugly cry, right? It's like yeah. it's not it's not pretty. And yeah, people have to you gotta be real about that stuff for people to yeah. feel safe to be real, like to to have that witness witnessing experience with other people in their lives as well. So Exactly. And so, um, and for us, a lot of the times that we talk to, uh, we actually also just chatted with this amazing woman. She's got her own podcast. Her name is Shama. She's from Sweden. And she shared, she didn't even think she was going to share this story, but she shares, she got on with us and then all of a sudden started opening up about uh, sexual abuse in a marriage. Wow we had no idea that's what she was going to speak about. She had no idea that's what she was going to speak about. Um, And then that episode has sparked, she's gone, she's now doing a whole podcast series about this to support women that are going through that. Wow. So for us to be able to speak about these, like we have, there has to be a safe space for us to begin to speak and we have to, say that it's ugly and gross and sometimes it's not comfortable yeah that's okay yeah that's yeah it's so true okay so if people want to find out more about what you do um about your podcast about wellness on the farm where can they do that Oh, you can find us just about everywhere as Wellness on the Farm. We have a website. It's wellnessonthefarm.ca. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Wellness on the Farm. And that should have everything that you need to get in touch with us. There is a page for our podcast on our website. And if you're looking for our podcast, it's called The Struggle is Real by Wellness on the Farm. And it's me and Amanda looking kind of confused about meditation in the middle of the road. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That's awesome. Okay. Anything else that you would like to leave the seed pod listeners with? Oh, I would say you are inherently worthy and valuable no matter what you're up to. Perfect. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) That's about it. That's perfect. And so, episode 4 of Seed Pod comes to a conclusion. In this episode, you heard Jack Emberley's guest, Jeff Clayton, a poem by Christian Cowley, and Amy Wood in conversation with Kristen Dobbs. 
The Froggy Symphony was written and performed by Jack Amberley with the technical assistance of Chris Clavette. The episode was edited by Christian Cowley. SeedPod is available on many popular podcast directories, such as Spotify and Stitcher, as well as the Seed Center Society website. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting us through our Patreon site or by dropping into the Seed Center Neighborhood House, where we offer many free weekly programs and services. The Seed Center Society is a registered charity operating primarily in Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows to provide community education on environment and development. Our mission is to connect people to community and foster an understanding of sustainability so that all living beings can thrive. So from Jack, Amy and Christian, Alicia and Arshia, it's bye for now. We'll catch up with you in episode 5, coming soon. No artist on his canvas could paint a brighter scene Than froggies in my backyard, all colored brightly green There's some with spots of yellow, a few are pale blue That dotted frog on that log sure looks a lot like you do So, mister, with that chainsaw, please don't cut that tree. It is the home of frogs, you know, my froggy symphony. And please don't drain that little pond to rid us of mosquitoes. Our little froggy friends, you see, think all bugs are.